Welcome to the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. My name is Josh Carey. You want in on a little secret? I was in hiding for 40 years. Yeah, I was hiding every part of myself in every situation. And I can tell you one thing, hiding sucks. I'm now on a mission to help extraordinary people like yourself rediscover the world around you, connect beautifully with others, and excel tremendously in all you set out to do. Join in. It's The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. And here we are, just like that. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of, you know the deal, it's the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. It's Josh Carey. And when I say I am so excited for a conversation, this time I mean it, just like every other time. But this time (laughs) is no different. My guest has so much, so much, so much. And you're going to see exactly what I mean. It's Deborah Driggs, who, to say that she went from Playboy, Centerfold, and Cover Girl to the top 5% in her industry selling insurance. It does not get better than this. Her motto, her mantra, the words she lives by is no means maybe. If you can't get behind that, my goodness, I'm all for it. We're going to have so much to speak about. We have so much in common outside of that Playboy thing, but you'll see exactly what I mean. Welcome to the show, Deborah, so nice to finally meet you. How you doing? Josh Carey. Hey, thank you so much for having me. So happy to be here. Likewise. Yes, no means maybe. I love it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not going to start there, though. Okay. I want to start with the Playboy. It's so much, so I, much, so I, much. <laughs> exactly. I have to start with the Playboy um, okay. for, for a specific reason. See, um, I spent 15 years in the entertainment industry, pursuing an acting and film career in the Big Apple. That was my side. Uh, I know you're on the other coast. Uh, So having spent that kind of time, I understand the inner workings of it. I know my reasons for, in retrospect, uh, you know, for wanting those applauds and accolades. And you know, they never really cure what you hope, or at least I hoped they were gonna do. I want to I want to hear some some insight from you because when I'm imagining when you achieve that level as a playboy centerfold and cover girl it has to seem like you've arrived the game has been won was there a sense of fulfillment in the moment and did that sense really remain for a while? Did it achieve what you expected, thought, or hoped? That is probably the million dollar question. I I mean, seriously, that is one of the best questions ever because as a matter of fact, I meditate every morning and I sit in silence. and, And one of the things that came to me was, isn't it amazing that some of the things in life that I would say, God, if I just had this, I things would be so much better. If I just had a million dollars, well, guess mm. what? I had a million dollars. I didn't feel better. Mm. Guess what? I was on the cover of the number one magazine in the world. Didn't feel better. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's the million dollar question. It's like, did you arrive? Oh my God, the gates opened. And mm-hmm. yes, my life was perfect. No, as a matter of fact, And hear me when I say this, my emotional and spiritual growth did not happen in my successes. Mm. They happened in my failures. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Say more. All my growth, honestly, happened in the most rock bottom Mm. failure situations a relationship ending, no money in my bank account, a divorce, you know, whatever it is, whatever those things that are a failure to you, that is where the growth emotionally and spiritually took place. Because what happens, and I, and I, this is what happens for me, and maybe somebody out there can relate to this, you know, when you do get that, you know, I remember when I got my first 
huge commission. It was in 2011. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Like, in what I, industry are we talking about now? In life insurance. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't believe it. I It was a huge case. And I remember getting my first commission check. And I think it was for like $250,000. And that was a lot of money wow. when I had come from hitting rock bottom and whatever. But I remember getting that money and thinking, oh my God, like I... Now I'm in the, I'm in the big leagues now. Wow. I'm, I'm starting to make money and, and, you know, but here's what was happening. You get, I got comfortable spiritually and emotionally. And then when something goes bad and something goes dark, all of a sudden you're back to, I got to work on myself. I got to get back in that growth of my spiritual life, my emotional life, because the, the successes is not where the growth takes place. It's the journey and it's the failures where the growth takes place. And so, yeah, was it amazing to be a part of Playboy history? Was it amazing to be on the cover of the number one magazine in the world in 1989? It was the number one magazine in the world. And I was chosen to be on the cover. Like, was that amazing? Absolutely. Did it change the course of my life in in? You know, for a while, yeah. Did everybody want to meet me? I got thrown on the Oprah Winfrey show. I mm. got thrown into a Bob Hope special. I got I got opportunities to audition for pilots left and right. But emotionally, I was still sick. I wasn't mm. I wasn't because I stopped growing because all of a sudden my ego started taking over. And whenever the ego takes over and you start thinking I've arrived. This is all it took. Here I am. Then the, it's it's kind of like you're setting yourself up for uh, for a failure. And you know, and, I, and I'm not speaking anything new or 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 you know how I'm saying this is that, and it's probably why I had such a short lived career because I couldn't handle. Mm. I wasn't emotionally strong enough to handle what was happening. Mm. And so you see that with. Celebrities, you see, like, how do people get to the top of their game? And then all of a sudden, they're all over the the news with addiction, divorce, death, suicide, you know, and you think, but they had it all. So when I say you just asked a million dollar question, it is the question that growth emotional growth, spiritual growth, it's a never, it doesn't just Mm -hmm. end because you get successful. You didn't just arrive all of a sudden. Now that's when the real, that's when the real work has to be done. I think now, I think if I could say anything to anybody right now, the lesson that I've learned at my age at 57 is that when the success happens, that's when the growth really like, oh my God, like, now I need to learn and grow more and keep the momentum going. I like how you said that growth happens in the failures and yeah. in the low moments. It almost I, seems like that as humans, we, we're almost blind to that, right? Because we see the failure and we beat ourselves up and we're like, ah, oh, that sucked. And we... we it's, it's tough to see the good or that acknowledgement in it until later, but I'm guessing spend, that, it, yeah. We spend too much time there is what happens. And I know from experience mm-hmm. that I spent way too much time in the dark times and the failure in the, 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 the negative thoughts, this replaying a story that really wasn't even, the story was over. <laughs> and I just mm. kept replaying the story. And when you stay there, it's like the, you know, the saying, the past, your past doesn't equal your future. Mm-hmm. But if you keep replaying the story of the past, it becomes your past. That's where, yeah. that's where you're living. You're not living here or where you want to go because you're replaying a story that happened 10 years ago and it doesn't matter anymore. And, you know, and, and I am totally guilty of it. I, I literally have spent time reliving stuff and, holding on to that you know it's like and then at some point you know and it's through many coaches through many mentors through many beautiful people in my life that have said who's 
who's getting hurt right now? Like you are Hmm. like they don't care. And you're focusing on that, whatever it is, people, places, things, Uh whatever, you know, the airline didn't book my flight, right. Or my ex-husband did this, or, you know, this happened with my kids, whatever it is, it's Hmm. not, you're not, I'm not solving it. If I keep replaying it over and over and over again, it's, it's like, it's taking over and then I'm stuck and I can't move forward. And so, but you know, it's, I wish, you know, it's like people would say, is there anything you would tell your 20, you know, when people ask you, what would yeah. you tell your 18 year old self or your 20 year old self? And I would say that don't live in the story of the past because that, we, I'm a different version of myself today than I was a year ago. That's right. I'm a different version of myself. As a matter of fact, I look at photos of myself from my Playboy years and I go, wow, isn't that funny? That person looks like a stranger to me now. Mm-hmm. I'm not even that person. So it's, it, I'm a completely different version of myself. And that's, really what it's about is just continually reinventing and moving forward. And, and, and it's okay. These stories are going to come back no matter what. That's just, that's just part of our (laughs) old brain that that's the way it works, right? There's little flashes of things that are going to come up and triggers that make those flashes come back. Right. Yeah. And so now it's like, okay, that's going to happen. I surrender that that's going to happen. And so what am I going to do? Sit in that or have a better solution to moving forward. And, and it only is through, like I said, the failures and the disappointments and the, the lows where that growth takes place. You have, you, yeah, yeah. You, you have these three words uh, I alluded to at the top. No means maybe. And I'm I, I'm guessing that that fuels everything you've done and you're about. Uh, you're an extremely, to say, extremely successful. I'm sure financially, personally, um, um, spiritually, emotionally, in that industry, in your space. Uh, this this phrase of no means maybe. Let's unravel that for a little bit. When in your life did that really become something you took hold of? I can tell you the exact moment because I'm a yellow pad girl. So Mm. everywhere I go, (laughs) and I have the worst, I'm a lefty. Oh, me too. And so I have a yellow pad wherever I am. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I take it on the airplane. I'm very old school that way. And so- I can remember the exact moment I was just starting out in the life insurance industry. I got my license and, you know, I just went through my contacts and I started calling everybody. And I remember I called a friend of mine who he used to run Warner brothers. And I said, Hey, this is what I'm doing now. I, I know that if I get you as a client, you know, the referrals will come and people will, respect the fact that I have you as a client. Social proof, right? Like, right. Hey, look and, who's, yeah. And so he's like, Deb, I already, I have somebody, you know, and it, it's a friend and I'm not going to change. And, right. you know, I'm all set. And I said, okay, I'll call you next week. <laughs> and he's like, no, Deb, you're not hearing me. Like, I'm all good. Like, everything's good. You know, I'll refer you people. But I'm good. I said, all right, I'll call you next week because things change. And I remember I called him the following week because I kept a list of who I called and mm-hmm. and all of that. And so I called him the following week and I said, let me just do an audit. And he's like, okay, what do I have to do to do an audit? And I said, let me just do an audit. And if I can lower your premiums, then you have to switch and you have to let me be your agent. If I can't lower your premiums, you stay with your friend who you love and that's okay. But let me have the opportunity. And he goes, okay, do the audit. I hung up and wrote in great big letters on my pad, no means maybe. Wow. So perfect. And, and, and as a matter of fact, everybody that I, anybody that I work with, 
or whatever. They know I have two sayings. No means maybe. And next. So I remember when I was working, I worked for almost two years for this print company in New York. I was in print procurement before life insurance. And and when a big deal didn't go through and I'd say, well, did that deal go through? And they'd go, I don't think it's going to go through. And I go, okay, next. Instead of sitting in the pain of like this mm. multi-million dollar deal didn't go through. Okay, next. And so I, that's what people would say, where they see me next or no means maybe. And no means maybe is really for anybody who's in sales, mm. you know, the grind. It's, you know, you call a hundred people, maybe one person gives you an opportunity. Mm. That's just the facts of sales. Mm -hmm. I don't care what sales you're in. It's, it's, it's all about relationships. And so if I got one opportunity, that was great. And, and you have to live by no means, maybe because I've had people say absolutely no to me. And then a year later, they maybe they're not going to be my client, but they'll call me and go, Hey, are you still doing the life insurance? And I'll go, yeah. And they'll go, I have somebody I want to refer to you. And I'm thinking, wow. You know, so that's why I say no means maybe, because you just never know when things are going to come back around and they usually do. Why life insurance? Is there anything there? Or was it just something that you had the opportunity and you're like, Oh, it looks okay. No. So uh, it, it was an opportunity and what happened was when I was married, my ex, my husband, I call him my husband, mm -hmm. he actually got into life insurance because the people that we did our life insurance through, the one of the, they were partners and one of them was also a baseball, he was really involved in baseball and he was really involved with the athletes. And that's how he started his life insurance business was insuring all these baseball mm. players. So when he did our insurance, he said to my ex-husband, who was, excuse me, an Olympic athlete. My ex-husband was in the 84 Olympics and won four medals and really famous gymnast. Um, he said to my, said to Mitch, you know, all get your license because you know all these athletes bring them in because that's our main thing we do a lot of athletes we do a lot of entertainment and so my ex got his license and when we got divorced I remained friends with those two partners so when I was kind of going through a phase where I was working for the print company and I started learning things like referral fees, draws, you know, I started figuring things out on a little, you know, and I had referred them a lot of business after they became my agents. Mm. I had referred them a lot of business. So I called them up and I said, Hey, if I refer you business, can I get referral fees? And he was very smart. He said, Deborah, go get your license because you have referred a lot of business to us. And why wouldn't you want to be partners. Mm. And I went, oh, okay. So I had my, I was working full-time for the print procurement and on the weekends I'm studying to get my life insurance license. And um, so that's how, that's how wow. that came about. And again, who would, I would have never, if somebody would have said, Deborah, in 10 years, you're going to be working for the top life insurance company and you're going to be in the top 5% of sales. And you had that, I would have wow. said, what are you talking about? You, <laughs> like, mentioned you, know? some, you mentioned some interesting things here. I'm just doing some fuzzy math here based on you. You gave us your age. Uh, you also said that in 89, you were on the cover. You mentioned your uh, husband, then husband was in the 84 Olympics. Yes. So I'm trying to do some fuzzy math here. So I'm guessing in the 80s you were in your 20s. Yes. Right. So in the in in 1984, I was 20. Were you already married to said no. no. He he had already been in the 84. So you were you were married to him after. after that. Yeah, so he he was in the 84 Olympics. We met in 89. Uh-huh. And, and we met in acting class because he had just done a movie that did not do so well in the box office and 
now it's one of those cult movies. Everybody's seen it, American Anthem. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so he was in that movie. And so we were in the same acting class. That's great. And it was a two-year program. And we started dating seriously in the second year. And, and we got married in 1992. So That's I was great. 28 yeah. when I got married. Wow. So in... I want to go back and and uh, back into your your Playboy days here. Uh, paint the picture growing up as Deborah Driggs. What was that environment like as a young child? So you know, I I grew up in the South Bay area of California, so I'm a Southern California girl, and I was born in Oakland, California, but moved when I was a baby to the Torrance area and South Bay area, and. Um, I would say that I was a real vivacious, extrovert, attention-seeking kid. You know, I, I just was. I was, you know, I my first addiction was attention. I It's no surprise that I mm-hmm. ended up mm-hmm. in the entertainment business because I really would, like, put on shows all the time for everybody. It was like, I have a show. <laughs> and they'd be like, okay. And I'd make everybody sit on the couch and put on my show. And I'd be like, okay, when, you know, what? but they indulged me. And so, but the other part of it was I had a mother and a father that got married when they were 18 and 22. My mom had me when she was 19 and they had no tools, no plan. Hmm. And so they were both working and really not around. And so I'd go to school, I'd come home, I'd let myself into an empty apartment and, you know, I didn't know that that caused some trauma, but I think that I've always had this fear of being alone. Mm-hmm. And it didn't come until later in life when I realized, okay, I do have an issue with being alone. You know, like you're an only child. Well, kind of. So here's the deal: I'm not an only child. My sister is almost seven years younger than me. So in a way, because of that age difference. You grew up, yeah. Yeah, I was already kind of independently an only child until she was born. And it was awesome that I have a sibling and I I was super excited. I remember when my mom was pregnant with her. But also what happened is right around that age, so I think I was about five or six, I started ice skating. Mm -hmm. And so I was a figure skater and the first time I put skates on and got on the ice, I was home. Mm. I I loved the smell. I loved the feeling. I loved the people. I loved, I just loved the feeling of being in the ice skating rink. And I started skating at Harbor City and I went through the whole group lessons very fast. And after that, they then suggest that you have a coach. And I remember my first coach, her name was Jan. She looked like Barbara Streisand. She was beautiful. <laughs> and I just loved her. And, you know, and and so then, you know, back then uh, in ice skating, there was, you had to do figures, which was patch. We called it patch and figure eights. And you had to pass certain tests to compete and so I was getting up now at 4 a.m. and skating before school wow. and skating after school. And now this is becoming my life. And and so I didn't really have much of a social social uh, life with school friends because I was at the ice skating rink. And really my life was, my family was my ice skating. That's where I learned all my valuable lessons that I think I have fallen back on today you like know what? well so my first competition I remember I I, I fell my first jump I fell I was, mm. I was so nervous it was my first competition of skating alone on the ice in front of all these people you're seven eight and years old I was probably nine. Oh, okay and um and I fell the first jump and everything just went fuzzy. Like I just was skating like in a daze and I was so mortified. I just mm. wanted to get off the ice and I came off the ice hysterically crying and shaking. And my coach grabbed me because you could do that back then. <laughs> she grabbed me and took me in the bathroom and started yelling at me. And she was like, stop crying. That is not going to solve this. Like, mm. this is what we're doing. This is the plan. And literally the next day she had me do that jump a hundred times. 
over and over and over again. And I'd fall and fall because now it was in my head that I, I fell when I did that jump. And so mm. she just had me do it. And like, that's the kind of coaching I had. And, you know, now when you do that to kids, it's a lawsuit, mm. but you know, that's, that's what it was. It was like, she was tough. You know, she grabbed me. She was like, we don't, this is not, you know, you're a competitive ice skater. This is not how we're going to behave. You're not going to come off the ice crying. Like, okay, fix it. Suck, yeah. Fix it. Yeah. Like we're going to fix it. And, and so then I really dove in and I remember then I, my mom uh, got me a, I had two coaches at this point and I was skating now on the weekends and wow. I was up, upping my game. So that was one of the tools I learned was that when you fall down, you're no good to anybody when you're down, Ooh. right? You got to get yes. back up. You're no well, good to anybody when you're on the ground, <laughs> you know? So if you want to be of service or help to people, you got to get up. And so and that and, that that's where the, that's where the growth happens, right? Cause we fail. That's where the growth is, but right. you don't stay there. Yeah. You don't stay there. And so that was great. She taught me that like, we don't stay here. <laughs> like we're not going to like, they don't feel sorry for yourself, girl, get back up. And, and your that, parents you know, were in support of this. Well, so here's the deal. So my mother was very in support. My mom is the one that took me skating every day. I think maybe my dad wasn't really involved in my life growing up. He maybe saw me skate two or three times. They were split at this point. No, he just wasn't around that much. So, oh, wow. you know, it wasn't like he just wasn't. Wow. Uh, you know, when I think of, when I look back, I'm like, wow, he really... He never took me. He never offered to take me. He never, it was kind of like, there was no interest, you know? But at the time, I didn't think anything of it. See, this is what's funny about certain things in life. Yeah. Is that my story back then wasn't, wasn't a bad story. You know, it's like, we didn't have any money. You know, my mom worked two jobs so that I could skate. And so we didn't have any money, but I didn't know, I, I didn't know that, we were below, like we were, you know, there's middle class. We were below that, okay. you know, I didn't know that. Great. I just thought everybody lived the way I lived, you know? So I didn't know that I was poor. And so, and I didn't know that there was huge problems at home and I knew there was something, but you know, the story that was going on back then was I skated, I went to school, I got good grades, but I think the underlining stuff was I was trying to be a perfectionist. You know, I was trying to say, look, if I get good grades, if I, if I'm a good skater, if I, if I, if I do what I'm told, mm -hmm. everybody will be nice and love me and they'll stop fighting, you know, cause the parents are fighting and, you know, mm -hmm. look, if I do good, maybe they'll stop fighting, you know? And I think I got that syndrome kind of going in my head. I thought maybe I could fix it. You and felt unloved? Um, I, I, I would say, yeah, I don't think that I felt that it, what I did mattered so much, you know, I, that really was a hard pill to swallow. Like I didn't feel like they didn't know how to, they just did the best they could with the tools they had and what they how, what they grew up with, you know, it's like, it just kind of, it became like a pattern from both of their families to those two people. They eloped, they didn't know each other and then they get married. And then, you know, my dad was very emotionally sick and mm. not well. And then my mom was angry all the time and there mm. was fighting. And I was like, ah, what's going on here? And so that's what I'm saying. I would try to get in the middle and be like, hey. Look how good I'm doing. Yeah. yeah, look how good I'm doing. And it didn't work. And so probably without even knowing it, that was like my first failure because they got divorced when I was 14. So up until this point, so now you're 14 or so, are you still skating as rigorously still, as you were? Still skating. But as soon as, as soon as I knew they were getting a divorce mm. and life got very unstable, and my mom couldn't afford to continue supporting the ice skating. So it was like oh, wow. two, de two deaths, right? Oh, it's no. like the death of a divorce and the death of my skating life. Oh, wow. 
And I remember at 14, that was the first like dark place where I was like, well, what's the point of even being here, right? Those, like all of a sudden I started having those thoughts and that was really unusual for me because I was always pretty outgoing and pretty, pretty confident. And all of a sudden I wasn't confident. And also I was actually being bullied in school because of my skating and because when I was, this is a story and I haven't told the story, but this is, this is something that happened when I was in kindergarten, I fell off a wall and it was pretty high up and there was no uh, railing. And I fell all the way down. Like I just fell down this whole thing and I landed on my face and I broke my nose, like completely broke it. So I've had probably seven surgeries since to keep fixing because I really, I mean, it was destroyed. My nose wow. was destroyed. So, and I had a baby nose. At so six never, years old or yeah. five, five years old. Yeah. yeah. And, and back then I was at this private Christian school on PCH. It's no longer there. And they had me in the office. And by the time my mom got there from work to pick me up, my face was out to here. Mm. My eyes, everything was bad. And so I had my first surgery when I was nine years old. They couldn't do the surgery then because of my age and and it, they wanted to wait and see what, where it was at. And so I think my first surgery, I was nine years old. So anyway, so I had this little pug nose and that became my nickname at school was pug nose. Mm. It was like horrible. And I was already insecure about how I looked. And then I was being huh. nicknamed pug nose. And so I was getting bullied at school and, and I was socially really awkward now because I was just skating And so I just started, my confidence level just started going way down. And I I remember in eighth grade probably was the worst year of like, oh, like I just, everything felt wrong. That's when your parents separated. That's when the ice skating ended. They were getting divorced. I was completely socially like going through the worst phase. And I was just like, I don't even want to be here. Like it just. And then, you know, it was like, and then I remember at 14, I was like in a private Catholic school, my grades started going down, but I did pass the test to get into the Catholic high school, which was Bishop Montgomery, but my parents couldn't afford it. So I couldn't go. So now I'm being separated from the kids. Yeah. I'm being separated from the kids that I went to school with, even though they, I was being bullied, you know, I, was, I had a few friends, but sure. now I'm like, where am I going to go to high school? And so I ended up going to high school in a city called Hawthorne. And I went to Losinger high school and it was completely different from my elementary, you know, and it was a much bigger, and it just felt, I felt very lost there. I didn't know anybody. So I start my freshman year of high school and I know nobody. I have mm-hmm. no clothes oh. because I, because I wore a uniform to oh. school. Oh so I have no clothes. Right. I'm living with my dad who's completely dysfunctional. Oh, wow. And, and he's like, get a job. If you want clothes, get a job. And I'm like 15, 14, 15 years old. And I'm like, what? I mean, he wouldn't buy me anything. Why were you living with him and not your mom? So when they got divorced, she did, She was living with her brother, with my sister and I that summer before high school started. And I didn't know where I was going to high school. Oh. And so my dad kind of came in and was like, well, you can live with me and go to this high school. And it just, it was a very confusing sure. time for everybody. What did he do for work? He worked for TWA. As? He worked in the hangar as a maintenance manager. So he was in the hangar at the airlines. Yeah. Wow. Hey there, entrepreneurs. Eric Cabral here, founder of On Air Brands and host of the Entrepreneur Circle and Capital Hacking. I wanted to share something truly unique with you that we've created called Pod Max, which is an amazing opportunity to connect you with major podcasts to help you share your fascinating stories with their communities. This unique invitation-only event includes interviews with you on top-rated business podcasts all in one day. It also provides a unique networking opportunity with high-performance guests and thought leaders who are authors, coaches and consultants, investors, speakers, 
executives, you name it. These are the type of people that you need to be around. We also provide industry expert keynotes to hit our stage to share insights on podcasting, investing, marketing to help you take things to the next level. And the cool thing about Podmax is that it has a multimedia agency engine behind it with on-air brands to provide social media promotions before and after the event to share your brand new shows with your network. So hit the apply now button at podmax.co and I hope to see you at the next Podmax event. So so now you enter freshman year, you have no clothes. He's like, I don't know what to tell you, get a job. So okay. you so you got a job <laughs> to to pay for things, to probably keep a sense of sanity. Yeah. I I thought, okay, I don't know anybody. So I got a job. My first job was at the Inglewood Cemetery, putting flowers on the on the graves. Like wow. and I, I got that job because I didn't have to, they didn't care about my age and they paid me cash. Wow. And then I worked at Pioneer Chicken. And then I worked full-time at Clark Drugs. So I'd leave school at two o'clock, walk across the street to Clark Drugs and work there till 11 o'clock at night. So work ethic is in place. What did you do with your money at that age? Did you know what to do with it? What were you spending it on or saving it? Uh, I bought a car. (laughs) As soon Mm -hmm. as I, I bought a car. The minute I turned 16, I got my license on my birthday. So you saved properly in order to do that. Yeah. And I bought my first car, which was a Datsun B210 stick shift, had no carpet. It was like metal. Like (laughs) it was so bad and bought my first car. And then I found out I had to have insurance to drive it. I learned everything the hard way. And so I was like, okay. So I, I, I found this company. I found this guy. This is the weirdest job I've ever had. But basically, I think he was paying 50 cents or a dollar for every envelope you stuffed mm-hmm. back then. This was like in 1980 or 79 or 80. And I remember filling my car with these boxes of sheets of paper. He did like these mass mailings or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. And so I stuffed the envelopes for like a 20, 50 cents an envelope or something. Mm-hmm. And I stuffed for 48 hours straight until I had enough money for car insurance and delivered them to him. He paid me and I was able to get my car insurance. It was like the weirdest job. And, but I did that along with my other job Hmm. so I could get the car insurance, but it was like, you know, I had to figure it out because nobody was giving me money. So freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior year of this high school, you're working as hard as you can. You're working, but, Bought a car, you know, and then, and then, you know, I could, I started feeling good about myself because I had money. I had a car. I had clothes now. Friends. I had friends now. Now I'm a cheerleader. Oh. I'm getting involved in the dance um, uh, club. I was still with your father. You're still with my father. He's not around though. You know, even though I live with him, I live alone. You know, he's, he's, he's working and busy doing what he does and he's not around. This is a funny story though. I mean, talk about getting mixed messages as a teenager. So I love to surf. And one morning I ditched school to go surfing with friends and I'm at the beach all day. And I forgot I had my dad's car keys in my backpack and so, cause I would drive his car every once in a while and I had his car keys and he worked a shift where he had to be at work at 4 PM. He worked like a twilight shift or something. And so he goes to the school, to my high school to find me, to get his car keys. And I'm not there. Oh my. And so he's, he's, he goes and talks to all my teachers and they're like, no, she's not here. She hasn't been here all day. So when I got home, I'm like, tan. <laughs> My hair is all wild yeah, yeah, from yeah. the beach, you know, and I'm like happy because I probably smoked a little pot at the beach while I'm surfing with my friends. And of course, I walk in and well, first of all, I see his car and I'm like, what's he doing here? He's usually at work. And I walk in and he's just sitting like this. And he's like, so where have you been? And I'm like, I was at school. <laughs> he's like, oh, really? That's funny because I was there. And I talked to all your teachers and you weren't there. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, I didn't go to school today. (laughs) Oh, today? No, no, not today. Yeah, yeah. and he goes, yeah, yeah, I know. So where have you been? I said, 
I went surfing. He goes, well, that's great. You have my car keys. And I went, oh, ah. So anyway, but the funny part of the story is, is that this was the first time he was going to parent me. And I was like, he's like, well, I think there should be a consequence. And I go, for what? (laughs) Since when do you care? You're just pissed because I have your car keys. Like, you know, so, but it was just like, I was, it was like, there were never any consequences. It's just like, Mm. I never felt like worried or scared that something bad was going to happen because there was never, nobody was ever there to parent or say, you know, because I was just like, what are you going to do? You're going to work. Where do you, who's monitoring me? Where did you see your life going in high school, junior, senior year? What'd you want to be? What'd you think you were going to get into? What'd you want to do? I didn't really know. I knew, I knew a couple things. One, I knew I was not staying in this area in Hawthorne where I was going to high school. I knew that for sure. I knew that the minute I graduated, I was out of there and that that was not for me. I, I just knew that that's not where my life was going to be. <laughs> there was nothing there keeping me there. And it was, I knew there was something better. I didn't know what, but I knew that I was leaving that area. And my mom had remarried my senior year. And she now was living in Dana Point with her new husband. And so when I turned 18 when I was a senior in high school which is really fun. People know that when you turn 18, when you're in high school, you can write your own notes. I didn't come to school because I didn't feel like it here. You know, it's, like, it's crazy. I mean, but it's the truth. When you're 18, there's nothing they can do to wow. go to school. So I barely went to school my senior year. I should have never graduated high school. That's the truth. Okay. So, so when I turned 18, I remember my dad came in with a cigarette and he's like, so Deb, Debbie, you're 18 now. You can start paying rent. Now you have to understand, I've worked my whole high school career. I'm paying for all my stuff. And now he wants me to pay rent. Mm. And I remember the first time in my, like, not the first time, but that, that feeling came over me again, where I was like, oh my God, you've got to be kidding me. And I went in my room and I called my mom. And at this point, you know, I had really been in a lot of contact with her. And, and, and so I called her and I just was like, hey, he wants me to pay rent. And I'm already working and can I come live with you guys? So I left in the middle of my senior year of high school and I moved to Dana Point And the reason it worked is because my mom and her husband worked in Gardena. So they were commuting to work every day. So what I would do is after school, drive to Gardena, help my mom at her office, and then I'd commute back with them to Dana Point. And I, this is how I finished high school. Wow. So my, so my, the end of my senior year, my government teacher calls me in and he says, yeah, you're not going to graduate. And I go, what? And he goes, you barely showed up to my class. You haven't turned in any work. You haven't taken any tests. <laughs> I can't pass you. And in order to graduate back in 1982, you had to pass government your senior year. And so I was like, okay, well, what can I do to pass? He goes, it's too late. Like graduations in like three weeks. And I'm like, it's not too late. I said, I'll, I'll do all the work. I'll go home and do all the work right now. And he's like, there's no way you can do all the work in three weeks. I go, yeah, I can. I'll do it. Just tell me what I have to do. And so he gave me all this outrageous work to do. Like, I don't know. I think he did it on purpose because he knew that I wasn't going to graduate. And there was just no way I was not going to graduate and stay back. Mm. So I went home and I did all that work. No means maybe, right? That's it. And so I turned in all that work. He gave me a D minus and I graduated high school. And that is, that is seriously like, he should have never let me graduate, but I think he could see, I, I, I truly believe this. And this is my intuition talking. 
that he saw that if he didn't let me graduate, that would be really, that would not be the right decision. That I was not that kid Mm. that needed to learn some sort of lesson there. Does that make sense? Like, I think he saw that I was independent and I was smart and I just didn't have any mentors. And, and, and because I turned in that work and I made the effort, he gave me the D minus, but, and I remember he just kind of looked at me like, okay, so here's, here's why I tell the story. Because when I, when I went to go live with my mom, there was a junior college in Mission Viejo called Saddleback. And I was a cheerleader in high school. So they asked, they had their cheerleading tryouts for Saddleback. And that's where I was going to go to junior college. So I went to the tryouts and I made the squad. But after I made the squad and they got my transcripts of all my grades and my grade point, Betty Shear, the head of the, the squad called me into our office and she's like, I can't let you be on the squad. I just got your grades and you don't have good grades. And I said, I go, I know, but you know what? I had a really rough time in high school. And I said, it was a really bad situation, but I I promise that my grades will improve. I go, can you just put me on probation? And she's Mm -hmm. looking at me like, how do you know about probation? Like, what are you talking about? And she's like, I don't think so. And I said, I, I will get good grades. I, I, I promise you, I will get no lower than a C plus. So my first semester in college, I was on the Dean's list. No means maybe again. Go ahead. So that oh. was it. I, I made the Dean's list and you were because, because I had purpose and I had, now oh. I had this new mentor. I had this woman who cared mm. and and told me that it wasn't going to be acceptable to not have good grades and be on the squad and that that wasn't going to be good representation of this or and I needed to be good representation of what they wanted us to be and it wasn't just about mm. cheerleading but we were representing education grades school cheerleading yeah. you know good energy and and you know, when she explained it to me that way, I was like, oh, I'm representing something. I have purpose. You just and- told us here you had um, your government teacher and this woman who who both a mentor or not, both you acknowledged saw potential in you. Right. Yes. And yes. gave you that chance. I I want to find the missing link here because I I, my story is that I spent over 40 years hiding all of the best parts of me, playing small, reserving it, but really knowing full well what I was capable of, hoping that all along these years, somebody would just see it and tell me, you know what, Josh, you got it. You're better than this. Do this, do that. What's with you? Come on. I know you can do better. That's really what I wanted. Never got it. So what, between my story and your story there, what was missing? Was it that you, you sort of asked for it or what? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. That's, it's when you play small and you know, mm. you know, oh my God, you know, the potential of all these different things and you're playing so small, you're playing so safe out of fear of like failure or they're not going to like me. And now I don't care, you know, (laughs) because when you get to, when you, that's the beauty of getting older. And that's why I love my age because now I don't care. You know what? You like me, you love me, you hate me. That's your choice, but it doesn't affect what I'm going to do today. Mm. But it did affect my, when I was younger, because I didn't understand that. But no, so what was missing and why I was playing small was that, like you said, the government teacher, the cheerleading Betty Shear. And then there were a few more of those along the mm-hmm. way. And, and, you know, I remember there was, I, I was at a seminar once and they said, write down all the people that have influenced you in your life. And I couldn't think of anybody. Hmm. You know, I, my mind went completely blank. Mm-hmm. But these are the people that influenced me. The teacher the Betty Shears, the, and here's the, here's the other one, you know, it, it, you know, it's always a person that you never expect Mm. 
And that's why now I'm always like very um, aware and curious when people say certain things to me because like recently, this is a good example. Recently, I had a friend send me a book as a gift. It's like, I was thinking about you and you sent me a free, a free book on Audible that he bought me. I've read this book three times because it's called The Power of Intention by Wayne Dyer. And I love Wayne oh, Dyer. Yes, big fan. Love Wayne Dyer, but I've never read this book. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I thought of you. I don't know why, but I thought of you and I bought you this book. And I thought, okay, I've got to read the book because why would he send me this book? And I ended up reading it like three times. And now I just, I go to sleep listening to it because it's so good. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that's what I'm saying. You never know where the messages are coming from. And so the next thing that I remember as a message was I was really trying to pursue acting I'm living in North Hollywood with two aspiring actresses. There's three of us. We have no money. I think we. I think my rent was 170 a month. How old are you? And 20. I'm in my 20s. Yeah, okay. 24. Well, okay. I, I moved there when I was 23. I think 22 or 23. Why? Why acting? I know my reasons. I've given that all retrospect. Why do you think you were like I? want to be an actor? What were you looking for? Well, one thing for sure is, um, so I went to, when I was a cheerleader, I was also a dancer because of ice skating, all the dance training I had to do for mm-hmm. uh, the ballet for ice skating. And, and then I was a professional cheerleader. And from being a professional cheerleader, I went with uh, one of the girls that we cheered with and we went to Japan to dance together mm-hmm. While I was in Japan, I'm 20 years old, and they asked me if I would do this commercial. And I said, sure, because I didn't know anything about doing a commercial, but I said, sure, because they just wanted me to dance for the commercial, and they wanted, they liked my look. So back then in 1983, for some reason in Japan, the 50s was very popular poodle skirts and like it was very strange they were really into like the 50s and so they had me in this poodle skirt and they had me doing like the twist and like 50s dancing and all this funny girl stuff and so I loved it I had fun I loved it I'm I told you my first addiction is attention seeking Mm. and I was getting all this great attention and I was good at it and and it was my first commercial and I came back home from Japan and I told everybody, I'm going to, I'm going to do commercials and I'm going to be a model. And they were like, yeah, okay. Models are like 5'10 and they go to Paris and like, they're really glamorous. And I'm 5'6, I'm barely 5'6. Like I'm a smidge mm-hmm. less than 5'6. And so I lied and said I was 5'7 and, great. and I'd go in in heels always to my auditions and, you know, I, I, again, I got no as an answer and I was like, whatever. So my first thing that I did is I went to uh, Hollywood and took a commercial workshop called Tepper Gallegos. And after six weeks of that, they had agents come in and they watched us do a commercial. And so I did a commercial and three of the agents were interested in signing me and I chose Pacific artists and I signed with them. And the first commercial audition they sent me out on was for a Japanese commercial. And I booked it. So funny. I booked it. It was for a non-dairy or a uh, uh, coffee creamer called Creep Christie for Japan. Creepa Christie. And so, you know, I go in on the audition and I, I was one of the girls that booked this commercial and I couldn't believe it. It was like, and they told me what I was going to get paid. I think it was like $700 a day. And it was like a five-day shoot. I don't know. It was crazy. And for me, it was like Great. I hit the jackpot. You yeah. Know? And so, you know, because I had done so many waitressing jobs that I was like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? $700 a day? Like, that was my check for like a month. So anyway, so that was my first job. And so I thought, okay. I'm going to do well at this because that was my first audition. They couldn't believe it. They were like, I booked my first audition. And so I had momentum and then I 
I signed with a, a modeling agency and she didn't want to sign me too, because she's like, no, because I, I have like a tomboy build and, and, you know, I'm five, five and a half and three quarters or whatever. But I said, no, I'm five, seven. Cause when, when I'm, when you shoot me, I look taller, you know, and I, I got, I was always like, no means maybe. No means maybe. And so her, her name was Vivian. She was a British, British woman. And, and so she signed me because she just loved my tenacity. And I was, and I'd show up to her office all the time and just, just to say hi and remind her, hi, send me out. So I did really well, actually. I, I booked a lot of catalog work. And I booked a lot of commercial print work, like, you know, ads that you wouldn't even think of, like where people are sitting in front of a TV going. Sure, sure, sure. Right. Selling the TV. Right. Like, yeah. So I'm booking commercial print and catalog. Mm -hmm. And then I was told that um, I started going out on a lot of swim, you know, Southern California. So I started doing Ocean Pacific's catalog and they, I worked for them quite a bit and I worked for Body Glove and. And so I got momentum and I started getting some tear sheets is what they called them, you know, and started mm-hmm. putting things in a portfolio and I was getting momentum. And so that's when I decided I wanted to be an actress because I thought mm. I'm doing the modeling, I'm doing commercials. Why it's not a lateral be, move, right? Why not do acting? So this is the next mentor that came into my life was I signed with a manager and my first audition was for Charles in Charge. It was a TV show. Scott Bayo. <clears throat> Scott Bayo. Scotty. <laughs> he dated my roommate. <laughs> so I know Scotty. Um, I didn't know him at the time though when I went in for the audition. And I went to the Universal lot. I think it was a Universal lot. And I just remember the casting director's name. I think it was Mel Harris or Marvin or anyway, anyway really nice man. I walk in for the audition. We talk for a few minutes and then I get up to audition and he literally stopped me in my tracks. And he goes, girl, come sit down. And he says, you know, when you walked in the door, I would have hired you on the spot because you have the look and the personality and you've got it all going on. But girl, you do not know how to act. And my advice to you is to get yourself in a really good acting program and learn how to act because you could have a career. Mm. And so I took it to heart. Like literally I left and I was enrolled in the Baron Brown acting studio, like within 24 hours. And I started that six week program and I took it very seriously. Like I was like, okay, I'm going to learn how to act. And at this point also, I had just finished shooting my Playboy centerfold. And so I really wanted to learn to act because now I'm getting called into everything because of the Playboy. And so I thought, well, I better better know what I'm doing. I want to ask about that. Um, <clears throat> a couple of things. One of the running themes I'm noticing here is that as you identified as a very young girl growing up, your your currency was attention, right? That was your drug. You were addicted to that. That's what you wanted. Totally. All throughout. When you got playboy specifically out of curiosity because i know that that wasn't your you know you as you identified you were already deep in the entertainment industry in various forms but when you got playboy what was the response from your parents what was that conversation like was there support were they giving you the attention that you remember you said as a child you're like hey look at all the good i'm doing were they was there a proudness to it what was oh yeah happening for there? sure for sure so when I, so we'll just piggyback to when I moved out of my dad's apartment when I was 18, mm-hmm. remember when he said, you can pay rent now or, or yeah. move out. I moved out. That was the end of my relationship with my dad. Fine. So he's now out of the picture because I thought I, I now I don't have to, I'm 18. I really don't have to have anything more to do with this man. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't adding any value to my life at all. Okay. So, so. When Playboy came about, first of all, it was a shock to me when they were like, yeah, we want to shoot you for a centerfold. I was like, what? Me? What? You know, because I was a funny girl. You know, I was doing commercial print. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I didn't identify as sexy. If somebody, you know, if Mm. I described myself back then, I was funny. I was cute. I was fun. I was adventurous, but I wasn't sexy. 
and I thought of Playboy as sexy. Mm-hmm. And so, so I remember when I called, you know, I, I, first I had to call all the people that my representation, my commercial agent, and they all cleared it. They were like, yeah, we'll still represent you if you huh. do it. Because back then you had to do that. that sure. kind of stuff. And then, you know, when I called my mom and told her, they were all, you know, they were a huge fan of the magazine. So there was no, like, you can't pose nude. Mm-hmm. Like it was more like, oh my God, Playboy is amazing. It's mm-hmm. like, it's like, like I, and back then in 89, it was the number one magazine yeah. in the world. It was huge. And so, yeah, it was, it, it was everything and more than what you would expect it to be. Like I, I was treated like a queen, you know, I, you know, Hef really made sure the girls were treated really well. He approved everything that went in that magazine. He saw every photo, mm-hmm. everything that landed in that magazine, he had seen and approved. That's how he worked. And so, you know, you do a test as, you know, to become a play playmate, that test goes to half and he just says yes or no. Mm. If he says yes, you're shooting to be a centerfold. And then he picks what month. I mean, it's, I mean, he right. is so hands-on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everything was just done beautifully and, and it was a great experience and it, it did change my life. And it also did change my identity a little bit because now everybody was like, oh my God, she's so hot. She's so sexy. She's so this. And I was like, okay, if you say so, you know, okay. You know, of course I love that attention, but I think that, you know, the best thing about it is that now I'm just a part of history. You know, I'm just a part of Playboy history and the history of Playboy is what's so fascinating to me. Hmm. The vision that Hef had, how he even started that magazine, what that magazine was really for. It really had nothing to do with the centerfolds. That just became popular. But really, that was a gentleman's magazine for luxury, a different lifestyle, a better lifestyle. It was about cars and cigars and, and, and you know, the best of the best. Hmm. And then... And then, you know, there were these beautiful girls every month that, that were, what I loved about it was that the girls were the girl next door. These were girls that were, men would say, I could be with her, you know, you know, approachable. The girls were approachable and, and he really stuck to that, you know, in his mag for years, even when other magazines started competing with him, Penthouse and, Hustle. And whatever, yeah, they were they were trying to go above and beyond, mm. and they 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 were successful because their their viewership went up. But I I just know that half was always like, no, I want it to be the girl next door. I don't I don't want it to be that. And everything you just laid out, Deborah, really, really uh, puts a powerful pin in. I mean, the way I heard the past three or four minutes how you got into Playboy and how you see what it represented for you, for your career, for your life, for the culture, for society. In retrospect, it's it's quite beautifully profound. I'd Thank love, to, yeah, I, I'd love to, and, and for anybody listening, go back and listen to that in context of the entire interview and see how that just sort of sums up who Deborah is and and how she got that way. And it's so interesting because I didn't even expect to run this long. And I feel like we've still only scratched the surface. <laughs> I mean, there's yeah. just still so much more to well, you. Well, that's that's what happens when you get old and you become an old timer. Yeah. You know, you got I've got 57 years of like so many different experiences. Like, you know, just yeah. so many, so many of different turns and different roads and different paths. And, and that's the beautiful thing. You know, it's like they keep changing. And like I said, I will be a different version Hmm. next year than I am today. And, and, and that's really the the hope is just to continually grow and learn Hmm. and serve and give. And, you know, it's like, that's the, that's the purpose of, of it all. You know, how can the person listening uh, continue the conversation with you? Uh, on Instagram, uh, you know, I'm going to be posting my website on Instagram in the next week or so. Um, and 
uh, it's been a year of just putting all this together. And that's where the book launch will be. Everything will be on Instagram at Deborah Driggs. And, um, and, and like I said, my website will be linked to my Instagram account within the next 10 days. This has been uh, nothing short of fascinating, satisfying, satisfying, in- inspiring, just truly everything that I would have hoped for a conversation with you, Deborah. Thank you so much for, for showing up and opening up in the way you have. Thank really, you. really nice to meet you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And I hope somebody out there got something out of this. And yes, please contact me on Instagram and everyone have a beautiful day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Make sure to subscribe through iTunes or Google Play so you can get notified every time we publish a new episode. And we'd love to hear your thoughts with an honest review on iTunes. Finally, follow us on your favorite social media platforms to keep the conversation going with Josh Carey and today's guest. Until next time.